Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. Big news earlier this week, um, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and a number of other organizations filed suit against the state and specifically the Public Defender's Office um, in a class action suit um, demanding that the Public Defender's Office appoint counsel for literally uh, hundreds of people that are awaiting um, the appointment of counsel through the Public Defender's Office throughout the state uh, because they have failed to do so over the course of many, many months now. And uh, so what happened was uh, our firm got involved in this, of course, uh, spearheaded by our own John Birdsall, and uh, along with other attorneys throughout the state, and researched the issue and found that, you know, actually came up with numbers, found people throughout the whole state that have been suffering due to what is really nothing short of a constitutional crisis that has been erupting. Now, just by way of background, this has been um, something that's been brewing for quite some time because uh, Wisconsin has been amongst the worst in the country as it relates to the pay rate for uh, attorneys that are appointed by the Public Defender's Office. And I know we've talked about this on the show before, but just as a reminder, the way that it works is the the public defender is tasked with providing representation for people that are determined to be indigent. And those indigency standards basically are applied internally from the public defender's office. There's a determination as to whether somebody meets their criteria. And this is all, you know, guided by statute, but it's also implemented by the public defender's office. And if somebody meets their standards for indigency, they're required to provide representation. Now, there are times due to staffing shortages or conflicts of interest where they'll have to reach out to a private attorney and uh, offer to have them appointed to represent the case. Now, it used to be that that was something that was a fairly common practice, but over the years, um, for a while, there, were, there was a higher pay rate, but then it was actually cut uh, at some point a few decades ago, and then it was an abysmally low rate where it was just economically not feasible for an attorney to provide adequate representation. And that combined with um, basically just a, a number of different factors that have resulted in the public defender's office being unable to appoint people. Now, interesting thing about this lawsuit is that uh, public defender's office has been trying, of course, to meet this statutory and constitutional obligation, but can't find lawyers um, to be able to take these cases. And it's not just a money issue. It's the fact that there is, you know, really a lack of qualified um, people that can take these cases. But the thing that drives this is that it's an, an economic impossibility. And the rates at which someone is paid are controlled um, by statute, by the legislature. So there had been a previous attempt through the Wisconsin Supreme Court to change that rate 
to make it so that there are more lawyers that are capable, able to take these cases without it being a, an economic, um, you know, disaster, <laughs> which it, it frankly would be. Uh, and essentially the Supreme Court said that it's not within their purview or ability to tell the legislature what to do and that they acknowledge that it was a tremendous problem and that the legislature has to take action, but they didn't. Um, so this is something that's happened in a, in a couple of other states and it actually did force some change because it's really the only way to draw proper attention to the crisis that we have. So this is the tension. We have um, a guaranteed right to counsel. It's under the Sixth Amendment. It's under our state constitution as well that somebody is entitled to representation. It's one of the core aspects of our society is that we don't send people, regardless of their income level, into a situation where they're facing criminal charges without qualified uh, proper representation. The system has evolved to the point where there is so little emphasis on that aspect of it. And I don't I don't say that I don't say this to mean that judges don't care. They do. Judges want there to be representation. There has to be. But I'm sure you can imagine that if we got to a point where there simply weren't um, lawyers available to represent people who are charged with crimes, it would be a very uh, disturbing upset in the balance of how the government is supposed to be um, kept in check. So it's created this basic um, emergency that there's many, many, many people, some of which are in custody and can't get out of custody, that need representation and can't get it. I guess it'd be nice if everybody could just volunteer and chip in to solve this problem, but that's not the way it works. And, and it's, a, it's an obligation that we owe to uh, people that are being charged with a crime. You know, every time that uh, there's a request for law enforcement to get more money and district attorneys to get more money and to build bigger courthouses and to build bigger jails, you know, there has to be a commensurate increase in spending for the defense side of things. That's that's 50% of the equation for if we're going to keep this justice system fair. So, you know, I'm going to let John talk about this in, in much more detail, but just so you can understand the um, magnitude of this problem. it's It's been pretty much uh, endemic to our system for quite some time. So the goal here is to you know, put the courts on notice as to exactly what's happening here and to get an order from the court to require the public defender's office to appoint counsel in all these cases, which means they have to try harder, first of all, but if they fail, they're going to need help from the legislature. Um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, when I'm in court with a client uh, and the judge is there to make sure that the defendant has representation and that the case is going to be able to proceed, judges are very careful to make sure that um, somebody has, you know, often had the time, uh, has the ability and so forth to uh, make those arrangements, but a lot of people can't just for financial reasons. 
And when that happens, it, it shouldn't be that someone's in such a, a state that they can't even get a hearing. Um, I've seen it happen in court where time after time after time, a, a defendant will be brought in, sometimes in custody, and the judge will have to explain that the public defender's office is trying, but can't find anybody to represent um, these individuals. And it's it's kind of shocking to see that happen because the judge is almost always like apologetic. Like, I'm sorry, but they're just, I don't know what I can do. We're waiting, we're waiting. And it, and it's just, it's wild because it's, um, it's something that shouldn't be happening and the inner workings of this whole process are, are broken. So, you know, I know it might not seem like uh, a big deal to the everyday person that doesn't have any problems involving the criminal justice process or if you don't have any relatives or friends that have ever been through it. But um, it's a very, it's a life-changing experience for many because it's such a um, feeling of helplessness. Uh, whether you've done something wrong or not, uh, to be accused of and brought into court and have to face, a, you know, a judge and a prosecutor and, you know, being told that you are, um, you know, accused of a crime and you may be convicted and you may have to go to jail and it may be a mark on your record and it will affect your reputation and all these other things. It's very serious. And, you know, we take it seriously in our country. It's something that we've always done. Although indigent people haven't always been entitled to representation, oddly enough. If you know about the case of Gideon versus Wainwright, that was the case that established that the Sixth Amendment means what it says, that someone's entitled to representation, and if they can't afford it, then yes, it does have to be provided at public expense. Because the prosecution is provided at public expense, and our tax dollars go towards all that. So in order to have a conviction that can be, or an acquittal, or whatever the case may be, that can be relied upon, counsel needs to be present in every case. And that's, that's important. So we'll be back right after these messages. So John is actually... Um, dealing with a number of press events relating to this lawsuit and that's why he couldn't be here today because he's dealing with a lot of that but um you know more on this aspect of this odd sort of um conflict that we have when it comes to the state charging cases and and really i we have seen an increase i think statewide probably even nationwide in uh, the number of cases that have been charged. And I, I wonder about this because over the course of my career, it, it's increased. And it, I don't think it's because there's an increase in crime. I think there's an increase in the, um, the well, I guess a difference in the manner in which prosecutorial discretion is exercised. And I remember it used to be that Oftentimes, I'd be representing somebody before they're even charged with something or they've just been initially charged, and I'd get a phone call from the prosecutor, and the prosecutor would say, tell me more about this person. I mean, we're, we're wondering if we should even charge this person, and maybe I can be convinced not to. And a lot of that legwork went into you know, a, a predetermination as to where things should go, and the, and the lawyer was critical in that phase. Um, and, you know, I, I found that to be an opportunity to have a frank, real discussion with 
somebody who has to make a decision and they're asking for my input just so they can learn more. Part of this was, you know, if we go after every single case, regardless of the other factors involved, and I'll give you an example. It happens all the time where somebody calls, there's a, you know, a quote unquote domestic dispute and 911 gets called. The police show up and of course, you're probably familiar with the fact that if the police get called, somebody's got to leave. It's just their policy. Um, you know, they decide <laughs> which one of the two people or more in a particular, you know, argument is going to have to leave the premises and likely go to jail. And it happens all the time where, okay, things got out of hand. We don't really, you know, neither one of us really want any charges. We, it was just a bad night. We're working on our relationship. Everything's fine. It was a one-time event. We're not, you know, our relationship's good. Um, we don't want the police involved. We don't want the DA's office involved. And the answer usually nowadays is too bad. Um, we're going forward with this and really against uh, an alleged victim's wishes, uh, you know, cases go forward. Um, again, it used to happen all the time where before anything was charged or um, as you know, things used to happen. There'd be something in the mail that would say, hey, I'm contemplating these charges. You better get a lawyer and then have that lawyer contact me. And of course, that creates problems with the public defender's office because they're not going to appoint somebody for a case that hasn't been charged, right? But um, when I would get hired on a case such as that, uh, a lot of times there could be, uh, you know, a much more detailed and in-depth uh, exploration of what was really going on and, and consideration of various different things. And oftentimes it could just be avoided altogether, you know, that there's, okay, there's no need to spend resources on a case that, you know, who knows what, where the interest is in pursuing it. But there's been this evolution of prosecutors that think that they know better than anybody else involved in a process and think about it you could spend you know 20 30 40 years in a relationship with somebody and you know this person very very well you've raised kids together whatever um and then there's there's an argument and somebody in the da's office decides that they're responsible for managing uh that relationship and uh doing something about getting a conviction or, you know, at least intervening in such a way that it requires people to do things ordered by the government, right? Um, there's been so much more of that. And it's kind of like, you know, and I, I get it. I, I see it from the perspective of somebody who answers the call when people call me because they have a problem. So I, you know, there probably are cases that are not pursued all the time. I don't see them. I know that. But cases that would have or could have been resolved much more easily and have saved a lot of time and effort are, are not being resolved. Um, it, and it's happening a lot more. Cases where in the past I would have thought, why on earth is this even happening? Um, it just, it happens. And it's it's part of what creates this problem is that we have this trend towards charging anything and everything 
um, even if the evidence is weak or even if it's against the wishes of somebody who's identified as a victim. And uh, that's part of what creates this problem is that it's more, more and more becoming like a police state. It happens so frequently that someone's in my office that they never thought in a million years they'd ever be accused of a crime. And here they are. Um, and lo and behold, it's a situation where I can't for the life of me figure out why um, someone's entire reputation over the course of a lifetime has to be, you know, uh, erased or tarnished by something that is usually a relatively minor incident. And don't get me wrong, there are times when things can be worked out. It's just much more difficult and much more um, against the grain than it used to be. And I think that uh, it's something that has contributed to this problem where it's hard. I mean, there's just so many cases, so many cases charged. Um, I know those statistics are often used to say that there's been an increase in crime. And I suppose overall, if you're looking over the trends from 50 years or something like that, there has been. There's been population increases. There's been, um, you know, economic hardships that have been made worse by various circumstances. There's uh, been an increase, I think, in um, our awareness of substance abuse and mental health abuse and trying to get people the help they need um, when they need it has been something that we've been better at um, trying to address those types of issues. Um, and I guess the DA's office sometimes sees themselves as part of the role of getting people help. And that's, that's admirable. That's fine. But it does require that if they're charged with a crime, that they have this, have representation, right? Um, so another thing that has contributed, I think, to this problem is that there are fewer and fewer attorneys out there that are willing to do the hard work required of uh, defense counsel. It does take um, a unique <laughs> perspective to be able to um, represent people day in, day out, year after year, um, and to be on the, you know, quote unquote, receiving end of the efforts of the government, uh, constantly trying to do bad things to our clients that may or may not have done something wrong. So I think it's something that maybe the public has uh, generally reached an opinion that that type of work is not lucrative or it's not, and it isn't, but also that it's uh, something that is, you know, if someone goes to law school and gets a degree, they probably want to do other things where they can make big money, work in a big office building with 700 lawyers and sue everybody all over the place and you know, kind of have that perspective on what practicing law is all about, which I have no interest in. But, um, you know, I think that's part of the problem is that we've seen a lot fewer, a lot fewer uh, lawyers interested in having this as a vocation. So there's that. I mean, there's plenty. But the point is that it's not the same uh, degree or amount of people coming out of law school that go into that particular area. It's, I think it's getting much, much more rare. 
um, which is a bad thing because that's those are seeds that are being planted for problems in the future if we don't address it properly and make sure that our system is working. So I've said this before, but it's kind of um, strange to me that the functioning of our system relies greatly on there just by chance there being enough defense lawyers in in our state in our country i mean think about that there's no mechanism um other than the public defender's office itself which if that was fully funded and if they had ways of making sure that they had plenty of lawyers and they had a way to uh, not have to uh, ask lawyers in the community to help um because of conflicts and because of understaffing then we'd probably be talking about a different issue. And maybe that's part of where the answer lies. Well, we'll talk more about that when we come back. So before the break, I was talking about how strange it seems to me that our entire system of justice seems to depend upon um, chance that there will be enough lawyers around that are willing to do criminal defense work um, in order to keep it going. Because if suddenly... Um, it turned out that there was a widespread opinion, and, and I'm, what I'm saying is it seems like it's going in this direction, widespread opinion that it's either too difficult or uh, not economically feasible or um, for whatever reason that there just aren't enough people that are interested in being criminal defense lawyers. You know, that, that's something that the courts don't have control over. The DA's office doesn't have control over if just suddenly there there weren't any because nobody wants to do it, what would happen? It, it would be um, a disaster. And, and it seems odd to me that we don't have some sort of plan in place that takes care of that situation. And, and one thing that could be done, because the state does have control over how many public defenders and what type of resources the public defender's office gets, Right? That's something that's guided by the legislature. And if we had twice as many, three times as many public defenders that we have, maybe this wouldn't be a problem. Because, I mean, there's, it's just dramatically, vastly underfunded. So, you know, what, what if? I mean, it's just kind of like this big, there's no contingency plan for what would happen if that were the case. We're just relying upon, hoping that enough young law students have an interest in criminal defense so that they'll fill that need. But, you know, it's, I gotta be honest with you, sometimes I can imagine that a person of average fortitude wouldn't be able to handle it. It's a very, very difficult thing. I mean, you're in court all the time facing judges that sometimes are angry at you because you're doing your best to represent someone's interest because you believe in the Constitution, of all things. I mean, that's pretty important. And there, there's often an attitude where, you know, you need to be doing things much faster than you feel comfortable with, or you need to take on the obligation of doing trials, trial after trial after trial after trial. And that if you try and say, Judge, I'm, I honestly don't think I can do that, they don't believe you. <laughs> and they basically are more interested in making sure their calendars run well. And 
so you know it's you have to face um the adversary in this pro and judges aren't adversaries but the da's office is of course um but you have to face these difficult situations on an ongoing basis there's you work nights you work weekends you uh spend a lot of time in jail with meeting with clients you have a lot of people that are depending on you and, and the outcomes will change people's lives it's a lot of pressure it's it's not for the faint of heart yet we just assume that there's gonna be enough people out there that want to do this that it'll fill the need now this isn't just in any local community it's throughout the state and we have you know basically two law schools that um are the primary source for most most lawyers law degrees in this state you know naturally there are lawyers from other states that come in and work here um but you know the the process by which we just hope with keep our fingers crossed that there's enough people that have an interest in doing this work um is the system seems to rely wholly on that um if public defenders got paid better if they had um more staffing if they had the ability to keep up with all these funding increases that happen on the other side of things that might be part of the part of us an answer to the problem because they could hire people you know right out of law school give them the training they have they have a very um you know complicated and uh detailed process by which people get trained and there's mentorship and all kinds of things i mean it's it's a good process um so you know that would be one thing that we could do but of course public defender's office has no control over that they have no control over the caseload any case they don't get to say hey um you know we, we're too busy <laughs> it doesn't happen uh so you know we also have to deal with the fact that and this is part of it there's attrition in public defender's offices because of the workload because of the burnout because of the things that we're expecting them to do and when someone you know quits or leaves or finds a better paying job or goes off into the private sector to be a lawyer in one of those big firms or whatever or sometimes they just stop practicing law because it's such a it's such an arduous task to keep up with um you know finding someone to fill that gap i mean sometimes it's a rotating door that uh, creates a problem there as well but the one thing we can do is identify the problem and make sure that people know about it so it's not behind the scenes and that's part of what this lawsuit is trying to do is to expose the fact that there are you know many many people throughout the state that that have been waiting a very long time for the public defender's office to do something and they're incapable of doing it uh, for a large number of reasons so this is really you know to make it so we're trying to do what we can to to make justice work better and so that people are protected and that's ultimately what it all comes down to you know you can't have faith in a society if you don't believe it functions fairly and there's a lot of people already that don't think are a lot of people a whole lot of people that think it doesn't function fairly i mean read the news every day right when people don't trust the government and it's understandable i mean 
it's it makes a lot of sense. But in an orderly society where we want to enjoy the freedoms that are built into the the ideas, the ideas in the Constitution, the the fundamental principles of what life is supposed to be like. I mean, it isn't that way for many, many, many people, but it's supposed to be something where you're you can pursue your own dreams. You know, we always say that you can be an astronaut. You know, all these things. It, it's it's kind of unrealistic in a lot of situations but you know we like to believe that and we like to believe that if someone is brought into court on accusations of something that the process won't be random or arbitrary or um, without regard to someone's rights that have been given to them by virtue of being in this country um, because when those things don't happen we we resemble um, other forms of government that are contrary to our democratic ideals you know dictatorships or monarchies or you know whatever when there's when there's no when there's a more emphasis on um separating society into different factions you know people that are going to be incarcerated or convicted of crimes versus those who aren't and if we live in a society where we don't have faith that by following the law, doing what you're supposed to do, leading a productive life, being a community uh, contributor, helping your neighbor, all the things that we want for ourselves and for our communities, if it turns into something where that doesn't matter because something arbitrary can happen, to you uh, because of government control or power over the situation it deteriorates our society greatly and the the hope of us having an intact functioning democracy start to unravel so this is a big deal i mean this is part of this is a a cog in the wheels of how things are supposed to work and if you don't understand how important it is, hopefully this lawsuit will bring some of that to light and further the discussion about all of this. It's already been all over the news. I hope you've seen some of the coverage of it, but it's made national news. Um, so this is something that we're hoping will lead to not only a solution for these individuals that are part of the class action, but also the betterment of the entire situation throughout the state. I know that there's other states that have similar problems that are watching what we're doing and hoping to uh, take similar action because it's not unique to Wisconsin by any means. It's particularly bad in Wisconsin, but it's not unique. And uh, hopefully we'll see some improvements in the process. It's time for a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Switching to other news, I wanted to talk about um, this process whereby there have been several hearings relating to the unsealing of the affidavit that was used to obtain the warrant in the search of Mar-a-Lago that happened a few weeks ago. And um, a lot of people have been asking me, what, what is that all about? Um, and why would there be some reason to not allow that to be publicly revealed? Or why are there these redactions going on? Well, it's very, very common uh, in fact, in most cases, if not 
practically everyone that I've ever been involved with. When uh, the federal government gets obtains a warrant and they go to execute it, that's all done without the knowledge of the person who's the subject of the investigation or the place that is the subject of the search. Uh, warrants and their supporting materials are kept under seal. And then usually, well, I mean, in fact, every case I've ever been involved with, they're kept under seal until, unless and until there's actually a charge that results from it. And then the discovery process kicks in where the government has to provide that information. Uh, no such charge has happened in this scenario. So it would be unusual, first of all, for there to be an unsealing of the affidavit and supporting material uh, in any event, but uh, because there's an ongoing investigation and that's what and I'm talking about generally in any, in any case, someone can't just go to the clerk's office and say, Hey, can I get a copy of the affidavit that was filed with this search that was conducted, you know, the other day, they'll say, no, it's under seal. And it stays under seal until somebody unseals it. But that's usually because there's a requirement, uh, a legal requirement to disclose it to the defense. But until that happens, it stays secret. That's the whole point. Okay. But just to review, in case you're not familiar with how these warrants are granted, um, there is a process whereby a prosecutor will usually appear in front of a judge or along with an uh, affidavit or there can be telephonic testimony that's recorded, but it's supposed to be all captured in the form of evidence and to convince a magistrate or judge that there is probable cause in order for the warrant to be granted. And this is all right in the Fourth Amendment. No warrant shall issue except upon probable cause. So there's a meeting and there's a pitch you know, uh, judge, this is why we think we're going to find contraband in this particular location. And they can't just say they, they suspect, they have to articulate it in such a way that uh, they convince a neutral and detached judge to grant the warrant. Now, one thing to remember is that the prosecutors have the complete control over the information. There's no defense function here. There's no cross-examination of witnesses. It's simply a presentation of evidence, so to speak, to a judge to convince that it rises to that level of probable cause. Not, not a huge burden, not a very high burden at all, actually. Just, you know, probable cause. And pr probably, you know, more than a hunch, but and that you can name a reason why you think this is at least possible, if not likely. And then the judge then gives that approval and then the process goes is underway. But as always happens, the whatever is recovered during that search, I mean it never quite always matches up with um what was what they say they were looking for completely because, you know, I have many, many cases where they'll be looking for one thing and they find something else. Is that a problem with the case? No, because the warrant was granted and the um the reason for it is not part of the equation okay after happens all the time they're looking for item a but they find item b and they don't find item a they still prosecute the person for having item b so um anyway the the pressure to unseal an affidavit at this stage 
is just one, solely one, of the public's interest in knowing what's going on. And that's always there because that's reflected in our freedom of information laws, our open records laws, the fact that we have a a default position that the way that the government functions is supposed to be open for inspection by the public. But this is a category that traditionally and legally is not part of that. Um, however, you know, the, the public probably would like to know what's going on. I mean, it's, it makes, makes news, right? But also um, because there's speculation, because of the people involved, there's, there's reasons why a judge may um, approve the unsealing of an affidavit. Now, that's why redactions are what's being discussed here, because you can release something with redactions where information that is sensitive or should not be released to the public can be blacked out. In interesting, I've had cases where I'll get discovery that there are redactions, where you have hundreds of pages of just black ink <laughs> They're just the whole thing is just redacted. Like, here's your statement, and it says nothing except black, you know, just blocked out, you know. And they have this program that they use. They used to use highlighters, and I'd get things that were supposed to be redacted, and you could hold it up to the light and see right through where they used the black, you know, a black, you know, felt tip something or other to try and redact it. But now that now there's a program that actually does that and obliterates the the uh, text underneath. But um, so, you know, people are wondering, like, how can they keep this secret? Well, they're, they're supposed to. It's supposed to stay secret while there's an investigation going on. And, and theoretically, and this happens in thousands and thousands of cases all over the country, it's never unsealed if uh, nobody asks for it to be unsealed or if somebody doesn't uh, get charged. I mean, investigations happen where people don't get charged. Um, warrants are executed where they don't find anything. You know, that 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 would stay sealed until someone orders it unsealed. But that depends upon what the government intends to do with the case. So it happens frequently where I'll get on a case and then it'll be somewhat, you know, it'll be down the road when somebody has to ask the judge to unseal a warrant affidavit um, as part of the discovery process. Um, it happens automatically in some courts, but sometimes you have to ask. But that's important because one of the ways that you can challenge a warrant is whether or not probable cause should have been found. And there's really two ways to do that. One is by a simple, they call it a four corners attack on a search warrant where the argument would be, that the document, the affidavit itself, doesn't state probable cause, even though a judge said it did. Okay, that's a hard one to win. But more significantly is that there's a lot of case law that deals with the obligations of law enforcement and the prosecution to um, properly portray the state of the evidence, which includes not misrepres misrepresenting something, not exaggerating something, and just as importantly, uh, they can't fail to leave out information that would provide a balanced look. So let's say there's some factor that would be contrary to other factors that are in the affidavit that 
in logically speaking, uh, the applicant would have to say, now, Judge, even though we think we'll find contraband in this location, there is a chance we won't because of this other thing, you know, and it could be anything. Um, you know, we expect the perpetrator to be there, but we haven't seen anybody come or go in the residence in four days, and it may be that we we don't know where they are, so we're not sure they're there. You know, it, it could be a number of different things. That's not a great example, but, you know, um, they have to given and even they don't have to explain every possible innocent explanation for activity but but if they fail to do that there's case law that says that the warrant itself could be rendered invalid and that's why there's a lot that goes into planning how those affidavits are written um and usually they have to be done quickly but there's so many factors that have to be um worked into it to make it so it's something that will be able to be defended later. But again, normally the sealing of something happens because an investigation is typically ongoing, much more uh, involved than just what is recovered during any particular search. And sometimes one search warrant leads to another search warrant, which leads to another search warrant. And if the uh, subject of that knows why it's happening, then... um, that it could in interfere with the investigation. I know that sounds all very like Big Brother-ish and everything, but that's that's the government. So, all right, uh, that's all the time we have for this week, but tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense.